0: Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. We're doing another one of the names of God tonight. The one he gave me was El Gibor. The literal translation is Mighty God, but it's in specific reference to God as a warrior. So you would think of as like mighty warrior, even though the wording is mighty God, but the context is as him as the warrior. So it says God is our mighty warrior. Really to get the full context of where it's uh, listed in scripture, you would have to read from Isaiah chapter eight through Isaiah chapter 12. I recommend that you do it. It's a good read. I'm not going to read all of that tonight. So, you know, you won't be here till tomorrow. But we're gonna I'm gonna give you basically a summary of each chapter, and we may hit a few verses within some of the chapters that are are critical. Um but we're gonna definitely read most of chapter nine because that's where the name is introduced. Actually, if you go to chapter seven, uh it talks a bit about Ahaz, which we've talked about him before, uh which was Hezekiah's dad. He was very, very evil, wicked man who really brought a lot of the judgments on Israel that were happening in the time of Hezekiah. Isaiah was the prophet that Hezekiah ran to to ask counsel of God. So Isaiah was alive in the time of Hezekiah. So part of these prophecies that we're going to read through were prophetic of in Ahaz's time as to what was going to be happening in um, Hezekiah's time. So Chapter 8, we're not going to read it, but a general summary of it is exhortations and warnings about what was coming. Comfort for those who feared God, that help from heaven is coming. Yet great affliction to the idolaters was also coming. Remember, this was pre what happened in the time of Hezekiah. So these were prophetic warnings to the wicked, to the people who were in sin but it was also comfort and reassurances to those who did fear God, but he was going to bring affliction to the idolaters. Judgment was coming upon those who put their faith in other things. Those things will fail them. Famine, economic collapse, violence, and hopelessness will befall them. All of these things were prophesied in chapter 8. Going on to chapter 9, a general summary of this chapter or prophetic promises of the son that would be born and his kingdom, not Hezekiah, but kind of. The thing is, is when a prophetic word is given, there are usually multiple applications and you will see it ripple through time. So you'll see it. Look, it's fulfilled here. It's fulfilled here. Oh, the real fulfillment is here. You're kind of getting shadows of the real thing until it fully happens. Like Daddy said, Sunday, the enemy tries to fulfill his his objectives and God keeps pushing him back. So he keeps trying to do it over and over and over again. So you get these ripples through time. That looks like the prophecies fulfilled. But it's building up to a major event. So we're going to see some things fulfilled. These prophecies were about what happened in the time of Hezekiah. But they're also about other things that will happen later that will parallel those events. God gives us understanding about what's happening around us by giving us parallels in history. It also talks about in this chapter the judgments to come upon Israel and on the enemies of the kingdom of Christ. The book of Isaiah is called the mini Bible because it really covers the entirety of the Bible either prophetically or directly. There's so much in Isaiah. And you'll see that even in this few little chapters, it's covering the Old Testament, it's covering things that happened in the New Testament, and it's covering things that have not even happened yet, all in the same passages because of the ripples. So Isaiah is is a very in-depth, deep book. All right, so let's go to... Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 2. We're going to read through some of this chapter. Chapter 9, we're going to do verse 2 through 19. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now remember this is prophetic towards what was going to happen in the time of Hezekiah, but it's also prophetic of two other events also. You're going to see some parallels here. Thou has multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. For thou has broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. The, there's imagery that's already coming forth. We're, we're talking about a judgment in the previous chapter. Now we're starting to see hope of redemption. Imagery we're seeing as uh, garments rolled in blood as, as we're beginning to see hope of a victory mixed with the confusion that's happening in the midst of it. Burning and fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That phrase, the Mighty God. That is Gibor. That's where the name comes from. It, it reflects upon the warrior might of God. So we see judgment coming. We see all of this wickedness in the previous chapter. We see all of a sudden some hope arriving with garments dipped in blood. And then we see the birthing of a warrior king. Remember, this all happens before Hezekiah. So part of these things are fulfilled in him. But we know that the true fulfillment was actually Christ. So some of these things happened spiritually when Christ was born. But the true fulfillment of all of this won't actually happen until Christ returns. So Seth wrote his message, his uh, book report or whatever for his college report about the reasons that the, the Jews had killed their Messiah. This was actually one of the major reasons that they really didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Because what you're going to read, what we're going to go through, was what they were looking for, this warrior king. They were looking for these prophecies to be fulfilled, this mighty, mighty warrior, and Jesus came as a humble lamb. It didn't match what they expected. But he will fulfill this. He is coming. He did fulfill it in a spiritual sense, because he did bring great victories and, and win mighty battles. But he will fulfill it when he comes again in a physical sense. So this was part of the confusion that they couldn't grab hold of that made them not believe that he was the Messiah. The Prince of Peace. Oh, and when it says that word government, it says the government will be upon his shoulders. The literal translation there is dominion. So it's saying the rule or the the kingship, the dominion will be upon his shoulders. So here's a king that's coming that will have authority, rule, dominion when Jesus came the Jews were expecting a king that would come in with physical government and physical takeover and they would overthrow the Romans and they would set up a physical empire in Israel which he will do eventually but that was part of the reason they didn't think Jesus was it because he came with spiritual dominion with spiritual rule first and the increase of his government or dominion and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. God himself will do it. Right? In the time of Hezekiah, God brought a victory in by his own hand. They didn't even have to fight. An angel fought for them. In the time of Jesus, Jesus, God did it through Jesus himself. The people didn't do it. He did it. And then in the end, when Jesus comes again, he's going to end up being the one that finishes all of this. All right. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. God was warning. He was sending warnings of judgment. You know, I did that message not long ago about the towers are falling, and it looks like the church is just running around picking up the bricks and trying to put them back in and keep it back up. God moves in judgment to tear down systems for a reason and for a purpose. God is in control of what happens. But this warning was given, and this is also the warning that's connected to the harbinger message after 9-11, whenever the buildings fell and they came back with the message and said, we will rebuild, and the trees were knocked down, and they went back and planted uh, another tree in its place. This is a a symbol of pride and of defiance. We're not going to repent because judgment's coming. We have the ability to fight this. We are stronger than this. We're going to resist. We're going to yoke up with all of the tools of Egypt and whatever is necessary. That's what Ahaz did, which failed him because everybody that he yoked up with eventually turned against him. But in the end, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and the Lord defended them. So therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him and join his enemies together. So a judgment came. An attack happened. Instead of repenting and humbling to the Lord, they determined that they were strong enough to fight this and to rebuild. So God empowered their enemies to humble them. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the people are still thinking they can do this on their own. They're going to fight. They're, they're not submitting to the enemy that's overtaking them, and they're not turning to the Lord for deliverance from them. They're still saying, We can fight this. We can fix this. We can rebuild this. We can make this right again. Therefore, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. Now, these things, again, were fulfilled in the time of Hezekiah, but these things were also happening in the time of Christ. This is why Israel was falling to Rome. And in fact, when Jesus wept, when he said, I would have gathered you as chicks under my wing and protected you, but because you missed the time of your visitation, They had a chance to turn to God. They had a chance to cry out, but they kept trying to do it in their own strength. The zealots were fighting militarily and politically trying to save Israel. That way they fell. From the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, all of this stuff, Israel, Mossad, Israel ended up falling. So this played out again then. This is going to play out again, or is beginning to play out again now, even in the last days. Because God will allow the Antichrist to come into power as a purifying for the church. He's going to allow that enemy. God is a mighty warrior. He's stronger than anything. Can anything rise up and step, that he step back and allow it? This is the concept of El Gabor is to understand what a mighty warrior he is and what little power the enemy actually has against him so that you can comprehend that when he allows something to rise up, It is with purpose, and it's usually to humble his prideful children. But they didn't succumb. They didn't repent. They didn't turn to him. They kept fighting, 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 thinking they could do it in their own strength. The ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. So the ancient and honorable would be like their leaders and the prophets. He said that he would cut down the head and the tail so the leadership and the the prophets because they're telling lies for the leaders of this people cause them to err and they that are led of them are destroyed all right their leaders are misleading and deceiving therefore the lord shall have no joy in their young men neither shall Have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh falsely. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burneth as the fire, it shall devour the briars and thorns. When the Bible speaks of thorns, it usually always is associated with sin. Briars and thorns did not exist in the world until after the fall, they came as a result of sin. That's why whenever the Israelites um, left Egypt and they were doing great, and then the first place they went into was the wilderness of sin. It means thorns or thorny place. That's where they started messing up. It was symbolic. Uh, Jesus, when they put the crown of thorns in his forehead, it was when he bore our sins thorns are always kind of associated with sins because they didn't exist until sin so this fire that's happening this judgment is coming and it's burning up the briars and the thorns It's burning up the wicket and shall kindle in the thickets and the forest and they shall mount up the lifting up Of smoke. This is imagery that's also seen in Revelations chapter 18 when it talks about the destruction of Mystery Babylon. And it says that they will stand afar off and bewail themselves and throw dust on their heads for the smoke that's rising because she's destroyed in one day. Again, talking about the destruction that comes in one day. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. So we could stop there. You can read the the rest of it. In the verse, I think it might have been verse 10, um, that talked about the mighty God, the warrior. We see him in the middle of all of this and just all of this gloom and doom and all of this judgment. Yet in the middle of it, there's just this bright ray of hope verse that a child is born and he's going to have ultimate dominion and He's a mighty warrior. He's strong and he's in the midst. Then I love the if you can find it, it might be verse 10. Go ahead and pull it back up. The one that talks about to us a child is given six. 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 Ten is the, the bricks yeah. are fallen. The bricks are fallen. Okay. But yeah. Six. When we look at all of the other descriptive names around it, they're all working together. He's a counselor. There's wisdom. There's authority. Uh, He's a great father, which is one who corrects us. He is the prince of peace. You don't see it because it's on the next slide because the verse is so big. But he's the prince of peace. Uh, He's beyond our understanding. The mighty warrior, when you look up that word mighty, it encompasses a wonder, something extraordinary, something hard to understand. And I think it's hard for people to wrap their mind around this great, mighty warrior God who is the prince of peace who is wisdom and counsel who is a father it's because that's the way you really fight a battle yes he is strong and he is mighty and he will take down the enemy and in the end he's pouring out wrath and judgment but he didn't want it to come that way he moved first in counsel he moved in wisdom he gave you options he showed you how to escape it he offers peace He gives you a way of escape from it. He is protection in the midst of it. And even while he's doing it or allowing it, it is with purpose to try to save you from the major event that's coming at the end of it. He is a mighty warrior. So while declaring that God is a mighty warrior, that he is capable and unmatchable, it's followed by these descriptions of destruction to israel so we we see this beautiful little picture right here he's strong he's powerful he's a mighty warrior but he's also peace and wisdom and counsel and then right after that you jump right back into these terrible descriptions of the judgment and the war that's happening this is to make sure that you understand that this is not a strong enemy getting over on god when you see what's happening to israel This is a weak enemy being allowed to overrun a weaker people who have rejected the strength of their great warrior God and King. That's where we are as a nation. It's not that the enemy is strong. That's what God's greatness reminds us. We had the strongest, but you become weak when you put your faith in other things. They have chosen to trust in their own might and strength. So the mighty God steps aside for a moment and lets them see how weak they are without him. It's a humbling and a refocusing on the heights of his power and majesty. He can easily take out this enemy, and he will, but not before they learn the lesson and put their trust in him completely again. This is a merciful lesson meant to humble the prideful unto repentance before he steps in as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yet to those who humble and fear the Lord and worship him, he stood for them and made a way of escape and used them even in the midst of the judgment. Remember Hezekiah. The judgment still came on Israel, but for those remnant among them that put their faith and trust in God, he defended them from the enemy that he had allowed to come in and used them to stir people's faith to trust him again. He allowed miracles to pour out of unprecedented measure because he wanted the people to see that He was a mighty God and that they would could, could trust Him to defend them and a warrior if they put their faith in Him and not in all these other things, the systems and governments of men. They would be the example of how real God is to those who put their trust in Him, to the prideful and to the unbelieving. They would be used to stir faith in those who had strayed and called them back to the truth, to trust and serve and put their faith in the mighty warrior God and king that they had walked away from, trusting in worthless, powerless things that could not save them. This happened through Hezekiah, but this happened also spiritually in Jesus' time also. The disciples and those faithful few God used in the midst of all of the chaos to put faith back in God. And this will happen again in the last days. With the remnant. The Bible says that those who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. In the middle of all of the tribulation that God is allowing, remember, the Bible says that it's only because the Holy Spirit withdraws himself that the Antichrist is able to come into power in the first place. It's not that the Antichrist is strong, he's weak. But the people become weaker when they lose the strength of their God. When the Holy Spirit withdraws and they no longer have that mighty warrior God standing with them, the enemy rushes in like a flood. But to the remnant, to those who know their God, those who still stand strong and with him and and on the power of his word, just like Hezekiah in their time stood on the word of God, they were strong and did great exploits. And their faith was used to stir the faith of others, to put their faith back in the power Of El Gabor so it happened it was fulfilled in Hezekiah it was fulfilled in Jesus and it will be fulfilled in its fullness at the return of Christ and New Jerusalem and seeing this to me gave me a greater understanding that you can find a lot of parallels in the story of Hezekiah to the things that will be happening I believe to the remnant in the last days Verse 17 talks about the joy. When the Lord has joy in us, we are strong, right? When the Lord has no joy in us, we are made weak and overcome. In verse 17, it talked about the Lord not having any joy in their young men. And then all this stuff happens. The Bible says that he joys that his children walk in the truth. When we walk in the truth and love and obey and trust him, he's, Joys over us, but when he has no joy in us, we are weak. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we think that means that when we have a lot of joy, we are strong. No, it didn't say nothing about our joy. It said the joy of the Lord is our strength. When the Lord joys over us, we can have confidence that we are strong because he is with us and he is defending us. Yes, joy does give you confidence and strength and all of that. It applies both ways. But the truth of the matter is, is I don't care how much joy you have. If the Lord has no joy in you, you have no strength. You will not be covered and protected. You are not in a good place. All right, chapter 10, I'll give you a summary. It says it's a warning of wrath from God to come against the proud oppressors that call themselves his people false doctrine and teachers, greedy leaders, those who rob and lie and deceive and lead astray the people. Antichrist. The enemy is allowed to overtake them as an instrument in the hand of God for the punishment of this people to humble and to correct them. Then it turns to the deliverance that he offers those who repent and turn from wickedness. In verse Five, I'm just going to hit a few short verses. We're not going to read the whole thing. In verse 5 and 6, it says, O Assyria, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So when God gives the enemy authority to come in and overtake his people, it's because they're in hypocrisy. He will never allow it to come on those who are walking in the truth, but when the church starts moving in hypocrisy, he will allow the enemy to overtake you. The enemy that God allowed to prevail for a short time was for the purpose of purifying his bride this happened in Hezekiah this happened after Christ's death this happens to the church this happens again in tribulation then this enemy after he's allowed to overtake them for a little season becomes very boastful and prideful the holy spirit withdraws the antichrist is allowed to have some power This happens even in smaller skirmishes where nations overtake nations, just like in the time of Hezekiah. But then the enemy becomes prideful and boastful and starts blaspheming, just like Sennacherib did when he came against Hezekiah, just like the Antichrist. The Bible says he will have a great blasphemous tongue speaking great swelling words. Because these enemies think that they have overcome God's people in their own strength and wisdom, And they begin to blaspheme and magnify themselves against God so that then, in the end, God humbles and destroys them in one swift blow. He's showing them that he still is the mighty God. And they were nothing but what he allowed to happen. It happened in Hezekiah and Sennacherib. It happened with Jesus in Rome. And in the end, it will happen with Christ and the Antichrist. Verse 10 says, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did exile them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So he's telling his people I destroyed these other countries for their idols. Don't you think I'm going to have to judge and punish you for it too? So do to Jerusalem and her idols. Therefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed this whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of the high looks. For he saith. By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bonds of the people, and have robbed their treasuries, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand hath found as a nest their riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that hewned therewith? Now this this is important. This is prophetic of Sennacherib that came against Israel. This is prophetic of Rome that came against Christ. This is prophetic of the Antichrist that comes against the church. It's boasting that it was strong enough to overtake God's people. And God comes back and says, you were a tool in my hand. Can the ax boast that it was able to cut down a tree? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? Or as if the staff should lift itself up? As if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat one's leanness. Under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. Now prophetically speaking forward, this would be the Antichrist boasting and thinking that he's overcome the power of the holy people, as it says in Daniel, by his own strength. And then God sends the fire of judgment. In the end, the wrath of God pours out and shows him how weak he really is. You have no power against God or his people. And just in case you thought you could, even the ones that you took out, they're back. Oh, sorry, I guess that's frustrating. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. He says that there will be no need for the sun when Jesus comes. He will light up the world, New Jerusalem. And it shall burn and devour his thorns, sin, and his briars in one day. Go ahead and I'm going to just read through just because it's interesting the way it all plays out because it ties together both, yes, prophetically, Hezekiah's time, but it is speaking forward to the tribulation time also in the wrath of God. So we'll just go ahead and read through to 34 and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field. This is the fire that God's sending down in the end on top of these boastful men, so this would be like the wrath of God. Both the soul and the body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. The Bible says that in the last days Uh, Most of the trees would be destroyed and burnt up in the fire of God's wrath. There wouldn't be hardly any left. It says there's so few left the child could count them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Judah shall no more again stay upon him that smote him, but shall stay upon the Lord, the the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So they're not going to put their faith and their trust anymore in all of these other governments and leaders and systems. They're going to finally trust in the Lord. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God, El Gabor. They're going to return to putting their trust in this mighty, powerful warrior. Why would you trust in anything else or any other to be your defense or help? For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consummation decreed shall overflow the righteous. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, Be not afraid of the Syrians. So church remnant people that are truly knowing their God and doing, when these things come, when the enemy rushes in, when God allows it to happen, don't be afraid of them. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while. Yes, it's going to get rough, but only for a moment just a little while and the indignation shall cease and mine anger in their destruction. He's doing it for a reason. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him, according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. He's going to do great things. Exploits in the midst of it. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. What destroys the yoke? The anointing. He is come to Aath, he is passed to Migron at Mikmesh, he hath laid up his carriages. This is a, a mighty battle. This is a battle that happens. This is Armageddon. This is a spiritual fight. This is paralleled in all these ways. They are gone over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Rama is afraid. Geba of Saul is fled. The enemy's running. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Gilam. Cause it to be heard unto Laash, O poor, and Nathoth. These names, oh my goodness. Madanah is removed. The inhabitants of Gibeam gather themselves to flee. As yet shall he remain at Nod that day, he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the boat with terror And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. This is what it's all about. This verse right here, it's all about humbling the proud. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. What mighty one? The mighty one. All right. Chapter 11, in summary, speaks of the swiftness of which the mighty God defeats his enemies and the peaceful character of Christ's kingdom and his subjects. It's actually the more you go into it, the more it fades away from Hezekiah's situation and the more it blends into the return of Christ. This is what they were looking for when Christ came last time. That's why they couldn't they couldn't grab hold of him being it, but it is still coming. Um, it also talks about the conversion of the Gentiles and the Jews and the gathering of the remnant to New Jerusalem. So go ahead to the next chapter. We'll do a few verses. Not many. We'll do just a few verses out of it because it's really good. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch that shall grow out of his root. Again, talking about that king that will rule with his rod of iron. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who is that? Jesus. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge. And the spirit of the fear of the lord this is where this passage that we're so familiar with comes into play and shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the lord and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears so when jesus came at his baptism when the holy spirit rested upon him he receives all of these characteristics of the holy Spirit. But also this is referring to when he comes back as a mighty warrior king, these are the things that he will judge with. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. All right. So when he comes, he's going to come using a weapon from his mouth. Do you see the imagery? you're going to see it. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. So he's going to have righteousness and written in his loins and in his thighs and, and faithfulness. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. So when he comes and rules and reigns, they're the Predators and the praise are going to lay down together. There's going to be a restoration of creation where they don't, there'll be peace at, in the holy mountain. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I want to pet a lion. So I will, when this happens and I'm back from with the Lord, you're going to see me running out in the field being like, I can touch them now. I want this. Yes, big pet cat. I'm going to take it home and be like, honey, look. He's going to be like, not on the counter. (laughs) And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, which is a type of snake. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den so the little ones won't have to worry about being hurt by things and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy Mount for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for a sign of the people and to it shall the Gentiles seek. Now this is old Testament. This is prophetic speaking forth Began with Christ will be completed in new Jerusalem to this person from the root of Jesse will the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath And from the isles of the sea and he shall set up a sign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth so this is at New Jerusalem he brings them all back in chapter 12 is the end of this whole little block of prophetic writings and then he starts on a different topic Chapter 12 is very short. Chapter 12 is a song. So he brings us all the way through the pulling back of the Holy Spirit and God allowing an enemy to come in to humble and bring judgment, to him then destroying this boastful enemy to prove that he is the strongest warrior after all. He is that mighty God. To restoration to revival, to pouring things back out, to bringing all of the remnant back in together to New Jerusalem. And then it ends with all of the saints singing. Chapter 12 is very short. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou was angry with me, thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. If we look back really quickly over many of the key elements of the description of El Gibur, We see that he is a mighty warrior king whose garments are dipped in blood. He rules with a rod of iron. The wicked being allowed to rise up for the purpose of purifying the bride for a season of tribulation are then taken out in the wrath of God which is poured out on those prideful wicked oppressors. He defeats the enemy with a weapon from his mouth and the breath of his lips. Righteousness and faithfulness are in his girdle and in his reins. And in the end, the remnant sings to their warrior king as he steps in to deliver, defend, validate, and reestablish them in their promised land. Or a summary of Isaiah chapter 8 through 12 might sound like this. Revelations 19, verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his saints at her hand. Jump down to verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So an enemy has arisen. They've been purified through it. Jump to verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness doth he judge and make war his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heavens, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. All of this is happening. He comes in and then they decide we're going to make war with this mighty warrior, God and king. And immediately, there's not even really a battle. We call it the Battle of Armageddon, but there's really not a battle. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, there's no, they have no chance. It's so one-sided. It says, that Immediately the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them which had received the mark of the beast. Now, it's interesting that only those, it says, that received the mark of the beast were <coughs> deceived by the trickery and witchcraft of the false prophet towards this antichrist beast so there's something correlating to the mark of the beast that works into that manipulation and they were and had them that had worshipped the image these both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their and then the Bible talks about when Jesus comes the wicked are weeping while the saints are singing so we end all of this with the song just like in Isaiah chapter 12 I love it in Revelations 5 uh, 15 verse 2 it says and I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb, saying, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways. Thy king of the saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, and all the nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. I find it interesting that it says that the saints that overcome, they're going to sing the song of Moses. We know what that is, because you can go back and read it in Moses, and they sing the song of the Lord. I'm not sure what the song of the Lord is, but it could be that one back in Isaiah chapter 12, because it brings the whole story forward to that point. So the Bible tells us that when we begin to see all of these things happening, to rejoice and to look up for your redemption draweth nigh. So the fact that we can read this, we can see it paralleled in history. We can see it in the spiritual with Christ, but we can see it starting to play out in our own lives. We can see this playing out in our own world and politics. We can see God beginning to do this. So now is the time when you're supposed to look up and rejoice and know that your redemption draws nigh. Our mighty warrior, king, God is coming and nothing can come close to comparing or to competing with him. The only time the enemy ever looks like he's advancing is when he steps back and lets him. You can read Psalms 95, it's short, and it's another song. It's a song of repentance. I really rather like it, and it kind of fits into the descriptions that we read. It's a song, but it's a cry of repentance. And it's to remember that ultimately God is in control. God is the judge. God is the mighty warrior. So you're either facing an enemy that he has allowed to come against us because of pride and rebellion, Or you're facing him, which is even the worst place to be. But if you repent and you're in right standing, then you're actually standing with him. You're protected. And you're provided for in the midst of whatever comes. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hill is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. How mighty, how big, how grand is our God. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice, remembering all that we've just read, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. In Romans eleven twenty two, it says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fail severity, but towards thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. Our God is a mighty warrior, the lion of the tribe of Judah, powerful and just. Make sure that you are found to stand with him and not against him when he comes. He will make quick work of his enemies, and that day fast approaches. So repent, do the work of the evangelist. It's urgent. So Lord, we thank you for this reminder, for this lesson, for this image and glimpse of who you are, of the power that you have, that you are a mighty warrior and you are coming to make war. Lord, let us make sure that we are found standing with you and not against you when that happens. Because we know that if we are with you and that if you be us, then what can be against us? And that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Even the saints that stand in martyrdom, the weapon did not prosper. They just got their reward a little quicker and a great reward in heaven, according to the scripture. So, Lord, we trust you. We thank you for the work that you are doing. We trust in your wisdom and your majesty in these last days. In Jesus' name.